You're listening to The Broken Meeple Show, a podcast that speaks passionately about board games for the benefit of those who play them. My name's Luke Hector, best known for The Broken Meeple YouTube channel, and I'm an everyday gamer just like you. And I'll be talking about reviews, top tens, and just about anything that connects me to board games. As long as I have a tea or coffee in hand, that is. So grab a cup, relax, and enjoy. And remember, it's only a game. Howdy folks, uh, Luke Hector from the Broken Meeple here with no hairstyling whatsoever because I've literally just come from the swimming pool to de-stress. But whew, it's been a long weekend. Uh, I've had my parents round so I haven't been able to do any video recording. I've got just about enough time to do this because I've been at a Brin and Buy sale at Dice Portsmouth this morning and played some games, then went swimming. Now I'm doing this just in time to make dinner and then just in time to, uh, you know, do you know do other stuff this evening so it's it's a bit of a full day but in a good way and as i say there's a lot happening and it's good to see the family uh for you know a little bit even just for a couple of days because we've got the family a family wedding coming up in a month's time so we're kind of prepping and discussing and things like that but uh, in terms of the channel things are going all right actually they i mean some videos i would like to do a little bit better this whole Kittens like the Isle of Cats expansions and the Sinister Motives. It would have been nice to have seen them do a little bit better, but then my Beyond the Base Game videos always do slightly worse than the rest because they are more niche videos. Very pleased to see that the Autobahn Kickstarter previews done pretty well, though, for a preview video, because I don't tend to get a lot for preview videos, like, period. Uh, the Quacks of the Quedlinburg Megabucks uh, giveaway and Beyond the Base Game review is probably the best Beyond the Base Game review I've ever had. Although, was any of that expected because of it was a giveaway? I don't know. There, there could be some added inflation on that one. But what I'm most happy about is the top 10 worker placement games. This is the most voted list on my Patreon uh, page where you know people of a certain tier and above can vote on ideas for uh, top 10 lists. And this was the most requested, so I did it. And it's already nearly 8,000 views after a few after a couple of days. So, you know, good. It's nice to see this one do. I mean, 418 likes, six people who you know, just want to hate on me, and 418 likes. You know, I'm, I'm happy with that. You know, I'd like to see it do better. I mean, it's worker placement games. This is like the most popular genre that there is. But then YouTube doesn't flag my videos up to the top of the list <laughs> compared to a lot of other people. So I, I fight for whatever views I can get. But now, all generally good. Blog's still going, there's quite a lot I need to get done, and April has been a particular social month, which means that there's not usually a ton of time to get video recordings done. April's just, it's a good April. I mean, April has my birthday, I gotta get tax returns done, which usually means a, uh, a rebate. I've then got to, you know, we've got a fairly easy work schedule because most people are off work. You've got Easter weekend. There's a, there was a convention I was at uh, the other week called Bacon, which is essentially, hang on, let me get the Streamline page open. Whoop, there we go. Bacon is a convention that is held down in Exeter Way. And it's sort of close to my neck of the woods, maybe about 35 minutes down the road from where my hometown is. And it's a very small convention. Not a lot of people go to it. And it's basically just turn up and play games. So everything I've said about things like GridCon and you know, Shape, Battle and Roll and stuff, think smaller than even those. And you've got Bacon. It's essentially two rooms for, full of Euro gamers. But it was good. It was fine. I would have liked there to have been more people, maybe a bigger diversity of games being played, but it is also, 
three hours away to get there. It's quite a distance to travel. And after, what, five days of gaming I think I was doing, I was kind of knackered by the end of it, to say the least. Not to mention that it turned out to be a bit of a COVID super spreader event as well. Although, relax, I'm fine. I've tested negative all week. I've, I had COVID back in March, so I think the antibodies are still roaming around my system uh, on overdrive so I got off scot-free but a lot of people didn't so you know my thoughts go out to those who have contracted it during the event it is a shame but it's the Omicron virus hopefully it literally just gives you a bit of the flu and then it passes like it did with me so we'll see how that goes it did end with a good highlight though which was myself being able to play another game of Ark Nova with my good buddy Paul Grogan on his channel. So you would have remembered I did a playthrough with him a, a while ago, a two-player one. But on his channel, I got to do it on Sunday as well. So if I can try and find his channel, that would be good. Well, there's the one we did originally, which I think was like the December 21. But here we go. One week ago. Here we go. Gaming Rules, Paul Grogan. One week ago, two-player playthrough of Art Nova. Two and a half hours. I say not bad when we're interacting with the live chat and that. But this was basically us playing a game two players and just having a laugh really so um you know paul was kind enough to invite me around on the sunday to you know play that so by all means check out uh, gaming rules's channel check you know check out the gaming rules channel check out that video laugh along with us because we're there cracking jokes and just having a laugh it's it's what we like to do when we play games together and uh yeah it was a, it was good so generally i enjoyed the con would I go to it every year? That's a bit more debatable. For the time, the money, because it's not a cheap hotel, it's a pretty expensive hotel, I'd go to it if I was going with other people, because I would want to take a break from the convention and go visit more of Devon. But to go just for the con, I think it's a bit cost prohibitive and a bit of a long distance to travel. So, And also this year was easier because I wasn't going to the UK Games Expo, so I didn't need holiday for that. And I wasn't, I didn't have enough pro rata holiday from work to go home for Easter. So there were other mitigating circumstances that meant I went to Bacon this time. I don't think that will apply next year, so I doubt I'll be there next year. But as I say, if you're in the Exeter Way around late April, give it a look, especially if you're a Euro gamer and you want to play some like heavy duty titles. It definitely was skewed to that level, especially, you know, there were a few 18Xers as well. But, uh, yeah, let's get on with this episode. Uh, remember, it's only a game. That is going to be pretty profound later. We'll get on to that. But let's talk good stuff first. First of all, with what I played, which is literally played this morning. This is one of the games that I played at uh, Dice Portsmouth with a mate of mine. Finally, I got to try Aqua Garden. Aqua Garden has been brought to the club on many occasions, but I've usually been busy or absent at those times, and I keep missing out. But I heard Mike Delisio talk about it positively on the, on the Dice Tower, and a lot of other people have talked highly of it as well. But it's relatively unheard of. It was a Kickstarter project, and that's about it. I don't recognize the designer, I don't even really recognize the publisher per se. It's kind of a weird one. Underdog Games. Okay, <laughs> not, not one I'm terribly familiar with, but... It's a one to four player game, and you are basically collecting fish. It is building an aquarium. So already the theme sings to me. But essentially what you're doing is there, your player board has a bunch of fish tanks, and you're collecting the different fish and popping them in, and you have a capacity in the tank. And this is mitigated by what type of fish you have, whether you have coral or seaweed or big giant sharks, whatever. But the crux of... That's just what you're collecting for points. But the board itself, if I can get a decent overview of it, here we go, this will 
probably do. Oi, go away, privacy. Go away, privacy notice. We don't want you. Go, go, go away. So this middle board here is a kind of like a Takedo mechanic. You move your piece around the edge of this board, collect the fish tokens that are there, and you can buy other fish from this central board here and, you know, a central round board with other fish tokens on it. But it's Takedo style, so whoever's at the back is the next person to move. And this is the mechanic I do enjoy in games because it's that that tense decision between I really want to go farther in order to get what I really want, but then I'm not going to get another turn for a while. Is it worth it? Shall I pick something up that means I can go again? Is there a good combo I can pull off? You know, it's all pretty neat. You can claim little milestone cards for having certain fishes in certain tanks, and you have a little meeple on your player board that you move around in another little rondelle mechanic, which dictates what tanks you're next to to put the fish in. So there's a two or three little relatively straightforward things that you've got to balance out as you're playing this but it's enjoyable i i found it a pleasant little game it's not a filler it will take about an hour to play maybe less with say two players or something we had a full count of four and i was new to the game but i'm pretty quick so i don't usually have that problem but it's a very pretty game. I mean, the Kickstarter has done a good job in giving you these really cool little fish tokens, a couple of mini expansions. I don't know if there was like a retail version that doesn't have these sort of little pieces in it. Although it does make drawing them from the bag a little bit weird because you're meant to draw them from the bag onto the board, but they're all different shapes. You know what a turtle feels like. You know what a shark feels like. So you've got to have a very specific way of drawing these tokens out of the bag in order to make it entirely fair. The cover doesn't exactly seem to me either. I mean, that is literally just the shadow of a whale and blue. That's not exactly the most compelling cover. So I can imagine this wouldn't necessarily get picked up in the shops. But, you know, and there's a couple of other ones apparently. But the thing is with this is that I think the base game is a little bit too basic. Because we played with some extra uh, extra expansions for them, which I think only came in the Kickstarter version. I don't think the retail version will have them built in. So the milestones are in the original game, but you have these advanced fish, uh, these little cards where if you buy these different types of fish on certain spaces, they score you points in different ways or have some other abilities, that kind of thing. And you select so many of them each game and you put them in. That's quite cool. I think it needs that to really shine though. You need the milestones, you need these event cards that you put next to your board which which basically has you gaining extra money when your thing goes one full loop around your player board depending on if you have certain fish in the tanks next door to the event. Having all that stuff combined makes this a more fulfilling game. But without those events and without those advanced fish, you are basically just grabbing fish, sticking them into tanks, and scoring on a very basic basis, you know, and claiming a few milestones. It just doesn't... I don't think I would get as much fun out of it without it. But saying that, with those little expansions thrown in, which are not, you know, you teach them with the main game. There is no reason to leave them out, really, unless you're playing with really, really new gamers. This is solid. I I mean, first impressions, I would give it a 7 out of 10. I think it's good. Seal of endorsement. I don't think it's amazing. I think maybe there's a... Well, there's not much hype for this, really. But, I mean, a lot of people at my local club were saying that this was really good. And it is good. I think it's fine. I mean, it looks cool. It's well produced. It does put you in a very nice, like, pleasant theme. Because it's just like, oh, look at the little fishies. And I like fishies. I, I like fishies a bit like cats, you know. You know, fish are just cool. It's a nice little theme. It's pleasant. It's not quite zen-like, but it's just nice. 
it's a nice theme. You know, there's nothing that's going to trigger anybody about this. There's, you know, it's just, and most people are, you know, okay with sea creatures. I mean, anybody hates them. <laughs> you, know, you might hate sharks for whatever reason, but that's about it. But, you know, you can have a little Nemo fish, you can have seaweed and little puffer fish and, you know, crabs, crab people and manta rays and all sorts of weird stuff. So it, it's just nice, chilled, pleasant. I'd give it a seven. I think people should check it out when it comes on retail. Granted, I do, like I say, think it's better with the little mini expansions thrown in, but if you really just want a simple game that you could potentially, well, you should be able to play it in less than an hour no matter what, but it's not quite fiddle length. But yeah, give it a shot. I'm glad I finally tried it. If it gets suggested, I'll play it. It's probably not one that I'm going to seek out especially though. Like, now that I've played it, I'm not going to say each week, oh, bring Aquagarden, I really want to play that again. This is more just a, eh, this was nice. This was nice. I liked it, and I can recommend it. So, Aqua Garden. Alrighty, let's move on to an actual review here, because I am a little bit strapped for time, so I don't have a ton of time available to do a video for every single game I've got to review. Osprey Games very kindly send me review copies, sometimes without me even asking for them, which is rare for a publisher to do. Normally I've got to request a lot of review copies, but uh, Osprey Games just send me stuff in the post, which is very kind of them. Don't stop. But, you know, I, there's only so much time I've got. Now, they've also sent me Crescent Moon, but this is not the one I'm talking about right now. Crescent Moon is going to take me a while because Crescent Moon is an asymmetrical game, a bit like Root and, uh, what was that, K1 Vast and uh, Merchant's Cove, the ones where everybody plays a different game to the others. They're very difficult to get to the table and it's nigh on impossible for me to get the group together that's willing to do the research for it because I hate teaching those kind of games. I would like to review it at some point. I do have a copy of it. It just might end up being a first impressions video because I don't think it's going to get enough plays to warrant a full review. But I'd like to talk about it, but I think that's going to take a little bit of time. So please bear with me on that. However, Cryptid Urban Legends, this little uh, nice little box here, is a spin-off sequel to Cryptid. Cryptid is a very cool abstract game where you're trying to deduce where a monster is on a board and with the use of these clues that you know, you know one clue yourself and you're trying to figure out what the other player's clues are, you eventually deduce what hex on this modular board the monster could be and eventually you, you basically carry on until somebody figures it out. Really cool, really simple abstract game, which for some reason still makes people inept at trying to understand simple six-word sentences. I don't get it. The amount of times that a game has... I mean, that's the one flaw with any deduction game. You give the wrong information, you break the game. Why people can't remember a simple uh, four or five word sentence in this game, I don't know. Because your clue could literally be on forest or mountain. And you can check it at any time. Why people seem to be able to get this sort of thing wrong is beyond me. But, oh well. <laughs> Cryptid Urban Legends is only similar to Cryptid in the font and the fact there's a monster. That's it. Nothing else. <laughs> the, the designers, maybe. I can't remember if those two designers, Ruth Viviers and Hal Duncan, whether they did the original Cryptid. But yeah, this is a spin-off in every way, shape or form. But the idea with this is that it's effectively a two-player only abstract game, a little abstract puzzle game. You start off with a few of these city square tiles and you have three color cubes, red, white and black, that go in between them in a like specific setup to begin with. 
then what the idea is is that there is a scientist player and the monster player, both of which have a set of cards with three different types of movement on it, a line, spread, and something else. I, I think it's spread, I don't know, I can't remember the exact names of them, but it's basically three types of movement. And the idea is, is that you take it in turns to alternate drawing cards or passing or playing a card to move these cubes in between these city tiles, uh, tiles, I mean they're square cards basically, but to move them as dictated by the card. So for example, the align card in this picture here shows that you take one color of cubes, let's say we take the reds in this situation, and you move them all in the same direction, like it's all diagonal movement, but in the same direction. So if I was to take a line and move them to the left, this one would go bottom left here, this one would go bottom left there, and these two would go bottom left there. I know this is going to sound weird if you're, speak if you're listening to this on audio, but, you know, stick with me. You know, go find a couple of pictures as you're, watch as you're listening to this and it will be a bit more clear. But the idea is, is that each of you is playing these cards and moving these cubes. Once you've both passed, the monster player has presence discs that they put on the city cards themselves, depending on if they can name certain criteria. And the criteria is usually color or number of cubes. So they might say the number four. And any city card where there's four cubes total, combining the side, the left and the right side of the card, you put the disc on it. So you might have two black and a red and a white next to this card. That's four cubes, put a disc on it. On the other side, you might also have four cubes on one side of a particular card, put a presence disc on that. You can also do colors. But the idea is, is that the cryptid player must continuously try to get two presence discs on those cards each round. Because if they don't, eventually it will be a win for the scientist player. But by doing this, they're, they're essentially trying to outlast the scientist player because eventually the game is going to end in the monster's favor. The scientist has got to try and manipulate these cubes so that the monster is kind of cornered, doesn't have an easy way to put its discs out. And the cityscape gets slightly bigger. Some of these come off the board. There's another token that you can grab, which are, you know is a kind of like a win condition as well. But that's kind of the crux of the game. It's all about manipulating these cubes. The game is quite clever, but I do have one or two things with it. This is a small box game, but I wouldn't say it's a pick up and play game. There's a few little rules that you do need to be aware, and it did take us a little while to go through five separate rounds, sensor phase, hiding phase, victory phase, restrict phase, and expand phase. And because it's abstracted, it's difficult to explain the game in terms of theme. But positive-wise, it is a cool little puzzle, trying to outwit the opponent. But where the flaw is with that is it's very difficult to tell what the next best move is. Because each of you can have up to three cards in your hand, and it's hidden from the other players. Each of you has the same deck, and it is evenly split with the different actions. But aside from going through their discard pile... You don't really know what three cards are in their hand. You might be able to rule out one action because it's no longer there. But if you're doing that, you're really taking the intellectual of this level of this game to the next level, I guess. <laughs> to repeat a point. But otherwise, I'm thinking, well, I think this is a good move to align and move the red cube there and these two there and this one there. But then I don't know if the opponent has a split card, I don't know if they have an align card or whatever the other card is, and what they'll do with said card. So sometimes you feel like you're playing a card not really knowing if the opponent could screw you over or not. 
and you're just kind of going with the motions and seeing how the round ends. Now, you can manipulate it in your favor to an extent, but I feel like for casual play, this doesn't feel random, but it doesn't feel like I know exactly what the next move should be. If you really get into this game, though, and you, like, check discard piles and you, like, are card counting in the sense, right, you've played this many of the split, you've definitely played at least one of the aligned, you, unlikely you've got a split in your hand, especially if you've only got one card, but you could still have a split card in your hand. How do I know whether you've got the cards or not? The problem is not knowing what the next best move is. I found it very difficult to deduce exactly what card I should play, which meant that I felt like I was a little bit on rails. Now, that's not to say it always is that way. Sometimes you feel like you pulled off a good move or you could be outwitted, but... It's not for casual play, this game. I think this is really going to need a couple of people who play this fairly regularly, get to grips with the cards, really understand what's going on, and, you know, have fun with it. It's, it's an interesting puzzle, and I do like it, but I don't know if I would want to play it that often. And certainly, I think it's going to require you to play it fairly often to really get to grips with it. So... I'm kind of in two minds between a 6 and a 7 for this game. I mean, it's it's basic production. The artwork's pretty cool. I like the way the monster looks. It looks basically like a demonic version of Mothra, <laughs> which is quite cool. But hard to say. I I think it, it is a nice little puzzle. I'd give it a 7 out of 10, I think, overall. Yeah, I know, 7 and 7 here. But I'd give it a seal of endorsement because I think the game is decent. But I think it could have been better, it could have been great if I was a little bit, if I found it a little bit easier to know what I should be doing. And maybe you can call me thick, I don't know, but it's like, I, I found that it wasn't easy to see what the next best move was. And I found this with people I played against, like, for their first game. They really did feel like, I don't really know what card I should play, I guess I'll do this one and see what happens. But, you know, it's cool, but I think it's going to require a little bit of devotion. Righty, let's get on. I don't know. Now I'm going to do the news a bit later. I think it. I think we'd better end on those news fronts. So let's skip ahead to shelf talk. Shelf talk, or whatever. I, I don't even know if I'll call it shelf talk. It seems like a stupid name, but basically, people asked Luke. You know, what about games that you've got on your shelf? That you don't talk about. You know, you've never done a review for. I can't review every game. <laughs> Not enough time. If I was the Dice Tower, yes, it would be a cinch. But me, by myself, with a full-time job, that ain't happening. So why don't you talk about some of those? Well, good idea. Why don't I start? I've been putting this off for a few weeks now. It's about time I did. So we're going to start with a excellent little deck builder called Fort. I have not done a formal review for this, but I give it a 9 out of 10. And I've played it at least 11 times according to my logs. But bearing in mind, I do not log every single game I've played. Because sometimes I forget, sometimes I'm distracted, and sometimes I just don't care. You know, it's more just a rough guide with that. So I wouldn't take that number as gospel. But this is something I rank a 9 out of 10. This is from Leader Games, the same people who do Root. They use the same artwork as well. And personally, I think the artwork works better here than it does in Root, honestly. But, oh well, that's just my opinion. But this is a game that I've been wanting to try for ages. I heard about it and I thought, that sounds like a cool premise. You are essentially kids building forts. I think like a South Park, American children type setting and building like the sto like stone, <laughs> kind of people are these things crafting, uh, like wooden fort, bits and bob, toys, pizzas, skateboards, all that stuff, you know, sticky glue and 
you're basically just sort of against other kids. Like, I've got the coolest fort here. It's a deck builder where you essentially collect toys and pizzas as your resources in order to build your fort up. But with cards that you use in your deck building lineup, you could gain points from other means, such as like, oh, how much stuff have I got in my backpack? Score victory points. How many things are in my lookout? Score victory points. The deck building part is where this kind of like really works for me. The what you essentially do is each turn you play a card from your hand and it will have two actions on the card. So uh, you can see in this picture, I hope, yep, two actions here on Golden Boy. And one's a public action, one at the top, and the other one is a private action. Do them in any order, as long as you do one in full, you can do the card, basically, you can play the card. If the card has, in this example, a per suit icon on it, basically all the cards have got different suits like glue and crowns and books, etc., you can boost the card with more cards of the same suit. So it's even got, it's even got the turn summary on the board here, which is very nice as a reference guide here. But you can play, let's say this crown card, it says I can exchange toys for pizza for every crown I've got. Well, I've got one crown there. If I put another two cards with crowns behind it, I could do it three times, four times, five times, six times, depending on how many crowns I've got. Although your hand size is only five, so that might be tricky. But the idea is, is that that's how a lot of these actions work. Now, not all of the actions can be boosted. Sometimes you're just going to have to play the card by itself. Now, you resolve the actions, and they're fairly straightforward actions. You've got one of the best reference guides I've seen for a game. It has every icon on it. And it's all explained nice and easy. There should be no reason why you don't understand how an icon works. But on top of that, you can recruit more cards. You have to recruit more children to your fort. So you basically build up your deck that way. You've got a backpack to store extra things on top of your stuff, which is kind of like a temporary storage. And you've got a lookout which can store cards for later. So you can play a card and use something in your lookout to boost the card. And it, kind of, it basically takes it out of your deck and stores it for other uses. It's really cool. But here's the, the couple of really cool tweaks here. After someone plays an action, I mentioned one action was public. Players have the option to follow a public action by discarding a card of the same suit. So if I play this crown card, if somebody else discards a crown card from their hand, they can do the public action at one crown. You can't boost a follow action, you can only do the one card, but you essentially have that option. But the other twist that I love with this is this discard phase and the yard mechanic. You essentially, at the end of the term, discard any card that is either a best friend or ones that you've played to your discard pile. These are in your deck, they're still safe. The ones that you don't use and don't fall into your best friend category, which is basically two cards with a star on it, go to your yard in front of your board. What happens is that when other players do their recruit phase to take a card, they can take one of the cards from a face-up tableau of public cards or a card from somebody else's yard. So it's essentially thematically saying that if you don't play with these kids, they get a, they throw a hissy fit, they get up for themselves. I mean, these are kids, it's what they do. And they kind of sort of like, hmm, hmm, duty head. You know, they're kind of like that. And so they get tempted to go to somebody else's fort, like traitorous kids that they can be. But this is great. I love this little mechanic. Now, some people call it mean. You know going in that this is the case. Everybody can suffer from this. You can try to have efficient turns so that minimal cards go in the yard, but you know that you can't get too attached to the cards. And if you are really attached to a specific specific card, then play with the kid. 
play the card somehow, you know, it's up to you, you can mitigate this aspect, but I don't think this is too mean, I mean, come on, in the year of the dragon is mean, okay, this is not that mean, everybody's in the same boat, and it's just a cool twist, and you know me, you turn it, you take a, a mechanic that works well, and twist it slightly to bring something new to the table, then it works brilliantly. This is a very innovative mechanic. And it means that you can look at other people's cards and go, hmm, I'm collecting a bunch of books. Well, you've got Doc there. Gives victory points for cards in your lookout. Well, I've got a few in there, and I am trying to build that up. You know what? Doc would suit my deck nicely. And it's just, it's so cool. I love that. It's such a cool little thing. Upgrading your fort is also, you know, sorry, the kids have all got like lots of different abilities. So you can see on the screen here, there's all sorts from upgrading your fort to copying rivals' backpacks, trashing rival cards, which is quite funny, uh, putting stuff in your lookout, getting toys based on how many glue symbols you have, putting stuff in your backpack. There's all sorts of abilities, but they're not complicated abilities, especially with that reference guide. The artwork suits it great because it's really colorful, it's vibrant, and I just think it it works better here than it does in Root. I think this is tailor-made for this game. Comes in a relatively small box as well. It's a small footprint because it's mainly just a bunch of cards. But the other thing that is quite cool is that you, when you level up your fort, when you get it to certain stages, you essentially have, uh, like the first level gets you to pick an endgame scoring card out of a batch of a limited amount, and it's first come, first serve. Second level of your fort gets you a perk, which is a special ability for the rest of the game. And then level 5 triggers an end game and scores you some bonus points. But you get victory points for your level of your fort anyway. But the game can also end when somebody gets a 25 victory points or more during the game. So your strategy could be to upgrade your fort to level 5, but then it could simply be, you know what, I only want to get the fort up one or two levels. The main thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take Dash here. I'm going to get an extra large backpack perk if I can get it. If not, I'm just going to dump as much stuff in my backpack as can. But I'm going to constantly play cards that give me victory points for stuff that's in my backpack brilliant in that case that's my strategy just get free vp every time i play the card it will add up to 25 before you know it it's there's a lot of different ways that you can play the game you gotta play a little tactically you can't just say right my game is going to be backpack related because you need to see what cards you start with and what cards are available but it really does lend itself to some cool interesting interaction with players because everybody's trying to get their you know to protect their kids, but then you put it in their yard, and somebody eyes up your yard, and you're like, don't take it, don't take it, no, 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 Punky, I wanted Punky the kid, it's like, it's just a cool, light-hearted game that doesn't feel like it's too mean, and some people have complained that they think it's too mean, especially with the mini expansion, I'll get onto that in a sec, but honestly, I think that's a slight overreaction, I think this is just a cool, light-hearted deck builder. Oh, here's the reference guide on here. That, that tells you everything you need to know about everything in the game. The suits, the different icons, the modifiers, the actions that you do. And that's everything in the game. One sheet that everybody has. You don't need to share it. Everybody's got one. Perfect. It's not even double-sided. doesn't need to be. It's a really solid little reference sheet. Now, there is a mini expansion to this, which is not essential. I think it's a good expansion, but I would not say go out and get this as your first thing. It's a, in fact, I'm going to rate it right now. I'm going to rate it an 8. I think it's a good little mini expansion, but here is the, the deal with this. It's called Cats and Dogs. You can buy it for like a tenner, like maybe even less possibly. It's a really good value little expansion here. But basically, it's two modules. Cats and Dogs. The dogs are cards that replace some of your starting kids, and they've each got a criteria that you have to meet in order to play the card. When you do, you trigger some really cool, powerful effect, 
and then you put it in your dog house. Most dogs at the end of the game get seven points. Okay, pretty straightforward. But you could use them to boost other cards, etc., etc. But the difference with this is that when you don't play with a dog, dogs by their very nature like attention. And I love dogs, I want to give them all the attention. But if you don't give a dog attention, they get a little bit sad and they might wander off. That's what the dog does. It goes to your yard at first, which means it could be recruited just like a kid. But normally at the start of your turn, anybody, anything that's in your yard that didn't get recruited goes back into your deck. The dogs, however, go to the neighbor's discard pile. So the dogs start revolving, like, like rotating around the board based on not playing with them. So you might start off with three dogs, but you might end up playing dogs that you never started the game with. They just came from your neighbor who didn't play with their dogs. And these abilities are really cool. They're, they're simple to work with. I really like using the dogs. I think I would use the dogs in every game regardless. I just think they're quite an easy thing to do they're not mean they don't do well one or two of the dogs do do some negative effects which can be quite powerful so i do warn of that but i don't think it's too mean and like i say not every dog gets used in every game the cats on the other hand is a little bit more mean as cats can be but i still think it's good fun you have so many of these cats. You've got like Kingsley, Bandit, Scratch, and Scavenger. And you use so many based on player count. And the idea with these is that they're attracted to people's yards based on what is in the yard at the end of their term. So most of them will say two skateboards, two books, two squirt guns, whatever. Jitters here likes no cards at all in the yard. And a fat one dumpling or whatever it is likes three or more cards in there. They're pretty simple criteria. But the idea is, is at the end of your turn, if you meet the criteria of a specific cat, it comes over to you and it gives you a cool ability that you can use. But if anybody later on meets that criteria as well on a different turn, the cat then wanders over to them. And you could dick the cat back on a different turn. So cats are a little bit fickle just like cats are. Honestly, this game does such a great job at representing theme in a deck builder. It is one of the best examples of theme in a deck builder ever. Honestly, it's so cool. But these cats give you cool stuff, and I think they're just a fun addition. But they do up the meanness level a bit. Uh, scratch here. Before you play a card, you can trash a kid in the rival's yard. Ouch. Uh, uh, bandit here. Last time I played with two people with this, they complained, well, one of them complained quite a lot about Bandit being overpowered. It's not overpowered, you just have to deal with it. But it essentially allows you to take a resource from a rival's uh, pack and add it to your stuff. So they thought, well, that means there's no point in putting stuff in our backpacks. Okay, then don't. If you don't put stuff in your backpack, I can't take it. Failing that, the cat will go to anybody else who meets the criteria. So it's attracted to two skateboards. Okay, if the cat is annoying... Get two skateboards in your yard and nick it back. There's a lot of different ways you can deal with it, but I will say that yes, you know, some of these cats aren't horrible abilities. There's a, there's a few that are pretty nice and only for you. Uh, what's it? Calandro here. Whenever you recruit from the park deck, which is a uh, like blind draw, you draw two instead of one, choose one and return the other to the bottom. So that's a nice perk for yourself. Doesn't hurt anybody else. But Bandit hurts other people. Scratch hurts other people. I don't know about Scavenger. I can't remember. Dumpling is one that actually hurts yourself. So it makes it harder for you to build your fort. Which is funny because it's a fat cat. So it's almost the cat you don't want. Which is quite amusing. But yeah. It, some of these cats can up the meanness level a little bit. So you do need to be warned. But if you're familiar with the game... This is an easy expansion to throw in. If you've played the game once... You can throw in dogs and cats without a problem really. But... I'm not sure I recommend cats and dogs for brand new players, particularly if you're playing this with four players. It could elongate the game quite a bit. So I would be slightly warned about that. But 
all, all in all, I really like this expansion. It's a cool little addition. 8 out of 10, I think it's great. And I think if you're a fan of Fort, you're going to love this expansion. But I'm dropping it a couple of marks because of the meanness factor. And also the fact that it isn't necessarily great for new players. I wouldn't call this a, a must-have essential. It's just a good, fun expansion. And you know what? It's cool to have an expansion that doesn't cost the ends of the earth. You know, the Isle of Cats one that I just did recently, I mentioned that it was like £20 per expansion box. I didn't like the value of the Isle of Cats uh, mini expansions. This, though, is like a tenner. Uh, whoopee, like a tenner for a small little box that contains enough cards with modular expansions, so you could just choose not to use cats and use dogs instead, but... Yeah, it might even cost less than £10. You might be able to get it for slightly less, like 8 9 quid or whatever. But it's a tiny little box. You chuck the box away. It's not a lot of packaging. You just shove it in the main box. So, although, one caveat with that. I sleeve this game because it is a deck builder. And you probably should sleeve it as well. If you throw cats and dogs in, you will not fit all these cards sleeved in the insert that is provided. It will not work. But then, honestly, chuck the insert away and bag up the cards. Because it really isn't that big a deal. Everything will fit in the box then. It could probably fit in one more mini expansion if they decide to do one. But honestly, the only mini expansion I would like to see for Fort is a solo mode. An official solo mode. That's it. I don't think this game needs any extra rules. Because I like the level it's at right now. But oh, look at all these dogs here. Violet, Rowdy, Watson, Ranger, Duke, Pumpkin, Loki. Loki is a dog. Hmm. That could be interesting. Echo is staring into my soul. This uh, a husky dog with the largest like tongue, two white eyes with no pupils, a dark blue background. This is a demonic dog from hell that is here to eat my soul. And I love husky dogs, but I'm sorry, that is creepy. <laughs> it's a creepy dog. And Floofer is the fluffiest dog I've ever seen. It's so fluffy! <laughs> Some of these dogs are just great. But I, I, I fall in love with Squeaker. Look at the squeaker there. He's the, he's the most adorable picture of a dog ever. It's like, it's like a, like carpet fluff, carpet fluffy. It's just a thick, fluffy carpet is this dog with a bone in its mouth looking happy as anything. It's just great. Although the slight weird little toy thing it's got, which is like a cat's head with X's on it is a little bit worrying. But still, I, I love these dogs. They're just a great thing. It adds to the theme for a great game. So yeah. Fort is a game that I never did a formal review on, but I think if you are a deck building fan, I highly recommend it. I give Fort a 9 out of 10. I give it a seal of excellence. This is easily my favorite game that that uh, leader games have put out. I have no interest in taking on Oath, and Root is only kind of meh for me because of the whole asymmetric thing, but Fort is easily their magnum opus for me. This is the one that I shout about if anyone mentions that. Company, it is better with less players though. It does take a while with four minutes. It says 20 to 40 minutes. That is hogwash. I'm sorry. This game will take 90 minutes easily with four players. It's going to happen. I don't even know if it's even physically possible to play this in 20 minutes. I want to see a time-lapse video of people playing this in 20 minutes because I don't believe you, frankly. But, I mean, if two people really knew what they were doing in this game, no! No, 20 minutes, it's just not going to happen. No, this is a 40-minute to 90-minute game. End of story. I'm sorry, I just don't believe it otherwise. But I I got on with this game fine. It didn't take me long to learn it, you know, with the easy iconography. But some people struggle with it. It's not necessarily what I would call intuitive. But 
I still think it's amazing. I think the lack of intuitiveness and the fact that it does go on a bit long with more players, you know, does drop it from a 10 for me. I think those are quite major negatives you need to bear. And also the fact that it could be a mean game for some. But love it, love it, love it. This is one of my favorite deck builders, period. Love it, love it, love it. Right, let's take a drink. Because now... We need to go into some slightly less amazing things, okay? We're, we're doing the news at the end of this episode, and we've got to talk about a couple of bits of news which are not ideal, okay? Not ideal. And suffice to say, I'm going to preface this with a disclaimer, that the, the following section may be full of opinions, okay? <laughs> it may be full of opinions. You might not agree with them all. We can all have different opinions. We need to respect everybody's opinion, but bear in mind, this is taking on a couple of uh, slightly interesting topics. First off, I need to talk about a game called Viticulture. I love Viticulture. It is one of my favorite worker placement games uh, coming up quite high on the previous top 10 I mentioned. Viticulture World is a cooperative expansion that is coming out about June-ish time. Now, I did not get a review copy of this game because essentially this is given to literally the same people every time. I swear it's the same group of friendship group who get given review copies. So, you know, Rado, you know, One Stop, Tantrum, Finger Femur, Watch It Played, you know, Quackalobas, all these people who normally get review copies from Stonemaier get them. Interesting that they don't tend to say bad words about the game. Hmm, <laughs> interesting uh, correlation there. But as I say, I didn't get a review copy, but I'm still going to buy it. I'm still going to get this game when it gets me, uh, was it, they're going to do a pre-order sort of early June, maybe late May. When it opens, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to review it, I'm going to talk about the game in question and let you know my thoughts because that's probably what you want me to say. Now, if you watched my top 10 worker placement games video, you might remember that there was a certain joke I put in the video. Um, I don't want to put sound hopefully I can pause this before it makes any sound oh god I hope you didn't hear that but right so where is it viticulture here we go so oh my god ugly face or what but there is a part in the video uh trying to get it come on where are you there it is you might notice this elephant that pops up it turns up when I am mentioning a quote saying nobody has yet to say anything bad about this game the elephant then pops up as a kind of elephant in the room that I don't address. It sort of rears its angry head, comes in and out, and then goes away. Now, for some people, that's hopefully going to be a funny joke. For some people, though, they're not going to understand why on earth that happened. Although, to be honest, nobody has actually asked the question in the comments about that. So it either went over people's heads or everybody understood what it was on about. That being said, the idea is that it's... I mean, the idea that it said that nobody has said a bad word about the game itself is the fact that all these reviewers have basically praised the game like no other, and it's like, maybe it is a fantastic expansion, but I'll be the judge of that when I get a copy of it, okay? You know, if you're going to call that lot the IGN of board gaming, think of me as the Angry Joe of board gaming. But that's not what the elephant is referring to. It's that the elephant is that it refers to nobody saying anything bad about this game. I recorded that video a week ago. Okay, before I was made aware of a video outburst that was made by Fingerfamer where they talk about a certain card in this game. It is, I, I don't know the history that well because it's, I'm not a big historical nut, but essentially it references a couple of conquistadors, conquistadors, forgive me if I get the pronunciation right, but I'm sorry, wrong, <laughs> more often than not. 
But the, the idea is that this is a cooperative expansion and then you have different decks for different continents. The South America deck contains a card or two that references two particular figures from history. Now, I don't know anything about Conquistadors. This is not my area of expertise. And frankly, most uh, areas of history are not my areas of expertise. But the idea is the only reason I heard about this is because a video was released where I swear I've not cried that much at my grandmother's funeral. And that's saying something. <laughs> you know, if I can cry at movies, movies can put me into tears. I've not cried that much before in my life. But it's a heartfelt video where they basically talk about the fact that these particular cards really triggered them. And I can understand why. Because the whole idea with, you know, South America and Latino culture and what uh, Conquistadors did hundreds of years ago is pretty nasty stuff. So I can understand why it's not a theme that people would like. So they put out a video really expressing their views on it. It's basically a ticket to thousands of views. I mean, it's like 38,000 views and an extra 300 subs as a result of it. Maybe I should find something to trigger myself. I don't know. Maybe that would work. But as I say, I did think it was a little bit over the top, though. Now, as I say, I'm not an expert at this field. I don't know how people really feel about this. I'm not the person to really say, but I thought it was a little bit, a little bit put on. I think, okay, I mean, come on. This, maybe we're going a little bit overreaction here. Now, what Stonemeyer has done is that they have said that they, he's apologized for it, which is fair enough. Although to be fair, does he really have a choice? I mean, if somebody comes out and basically calls you out on a, you know, an issue with the game from a cultural perspective, you don't really have a choice but to adhere to what's being said, because if you don't, you will be eviscerated before you can even press the enter button to post the comment. <laughs> that is essentially what has happened online since 2020. You know, the whole thing explodes in that year. That year was the trigger point for when it was very dangerous to say anything online because you get eviscerated for it. But with this, what he's done is that he's apologized for it, which is fine. Fair enough. You know, he's apologized for it, and he's put this new character in to replace it. He'll put a pack in the game. You have the option of replacing the cards if you want. You can choose not to. You can choose to. There's no mechanical differences. It's purely if you just want a different cultural representation. Fair enough. I've got no problem with putting a little uh, mini expansion in there just to say, look, here's why this is in here. If you want to replace it, do so. If you don't, don't. Honestly... I'm probably just going to leave it as it is because this is not a subject that affects me that much. Go figure. But <sighs> I do have to preface the whole thing of like what my episode is called here and what my motto is. Remember, it's only a game. Now, I cannot really say how much a particular thing in the game could really affect someone. We have to respect everybody's opinions. And honestly, if this did affect you in a negative way, fair enough. You're entitled to your opinion, you're entitled to your beliefs and everything, and I respect that. That is totally fine. But it is still a game at the end of the day, and it's not like this is a one-off. Because if I go to a certain other page here, there's a good 25-odd games here that are all called Conquistador or have something in here to do with it. So... Do we go after those? Because I'm pretty certain... I mean, it's literally called... There's one here, literally called from last year, The Conquistadors, The Spanish Conquest of the Americas, 1518-1548. I'm pretty certain that is not going to point, paint them in a good light here. 
and I mean, I don't know a lot about them. I know that they were fairly nasty people, but not everybody is nasty. You can't just paint a blanket. You can't just put a blanket over them and paint it the same color and say that every single one of them is bad. I'm sure a lot of them were, but you know, there are exceptions to the rule. But yeah, I mean, everybody, I mean, take Winston Churchill, for example, you know, regarded as a hero of the British nation. Uh, delve into his backstory, he's not quite the saint as some people might portray him to be. You know, everybody's got a dark side and everybody's got a light side. But you've got the, all of these here, so do we go after them? I mean, surely these would be worse. That one I just mentioned, surely that would be worse, but nobody's mentioned this one at all. But then let's go to World War II. I mean, World War II was horrific. There is people who are going to be well triggered by stuff that happened in the Second World War, and there's a lot of games that have the category Second World War. Churchill, Axes and Allies, Ambush, Heroes of Normandy, uh, Fields of Fire, Advanced Squad Leader, Combat Commander, Memoir 44, uh, Black Orchestra, you know, uh, and those, you know, Quartermaster General. Quartermaster General, you can actually play as the Germans in the Second World War. So you're effectively playing the Nazis. That's... Surely that deserves a little bit of a mention if we're going to go to so if we're going to go to this which is something that happened hundreds of years ago. I feel like we're going to end up at this point eventually, but nobody mentions it. I've got a game here called Caesar over here. So this game here, Caesar, this guy was responsible for the conquering of multiple nations and the slaughtering of thousands. Uh do I now boycott this game? Do I put a video out saying I think that this shouldn't be represented in the game? I'm not going to because I detach myself from this kind of thing in games, you know, I'm, whatever. It's a game, I'm playing it for the mechanics of the game, and if the theme is interesting to me, I'll get onto it, but I can't think of any theme that's really going to make me go, oh, I really can't play this game, and there are some questionable ones out there. For example, here's another game that uh, is, well, actually, let me show the Caesar in a bigger light. So, here we go. This is the one that I've I've got to review this one. I haven't yet played it, but... Yeah, Caesar, of all people. Okay, here's another game that I've got that's pretty insane. So, this is Hostage Negotiator. You are negotiating the release of hostages from a terrorist, okay? That in itself has got to be a pretty dark theme. But on top of that, you... You, you get past the scenario by releasing as many and catching the, catching the other player. That doesn't necessarily mean that collateral damage is necessarily going to stop you doing that. You can win this game with collateral damage. And there have been times when I have played this game knowing that if I lose a hostage, I can win the game because of some of the move. Uh, dark. Much, you know, but nobody kicked up a fuss about this game. Where was the backlash on this one? Surely this is more relevant to modern day. You know, people could be affected by this stuff who were living today. Not something that happened 500 years ago, I don't know. But then, what else is there? Uh, trying to think. Uh, come on, this. I knew I had something in mind. Uh, oh yeah, Vikings. Vikings. Um, Vikings weren't exactly the nicest of people, were they? They pillaged and killed, and certain other things that I can't mention because this is a family-friendly show. But nobody is kicked up about any Viking game, to my knowledge. There's no massive video with tears everywhere saying, "I hate this. Please change your, please change Reavers of Midgard to, uh, n you know, 
British sailors of Midgard. I don't know. You know, nobody's tried, you know, or fishermen of Midgard. You know, no one's asked to change any of these Viking games. Fire and axe? I'm pretty certain you go and raid lands in this, and you get victory points for it. Now, part of the argument with the whole... Uh, like conquistador thing was that the card rewarded you for playing the card despite what it relates to which is understandable and i can i can gel with the idea that maybe the card should have been a negative card from a mechanical standpoint as opposed to a positive mechanical standpoint but you still have all these viking games that i swear probably go in that reward you for doing similar things that can be constrained as a you know little hot under the collar type thing uh, but there was another one I was trying to think. Yes. Does anybody remember a game called The Life of Billy Kerr? Life of Billy Kerr. This one got a little bit of backlash, but no major video came out saying that this is horrible and it shouldn't be done and that. I mean, if, if a video did come out, point it to me. Let me know in the comments, because I'd like to give it a watch. But holding on the troubled life of Billy Kerr. You interpret this guy's dreams. He's a guy on his deathbed, you know, and you're going into the streets to figure out kind of like what's wrong with him and all that stuff. The game itself was okay. It was different. So, I mean, I give it credit for coming up with a very different theme. Mechanically, it was fine. I didn't think the story was all that great, but it was a tough little co-op game. But... I think this theme has got to be one that is going to affect more people than most. I mean, it's a guy on his deathbed, okay? That has got to be pretty dark and troublesome for some people. In fact, it's actually a tiny bit for me as well. You know, I have been in that state where I've seen loved ones on, the, on their deathbed effectively, and it's heartbreaking, but I can still put that to one side and just get on with the game. This war of mine... Um, do you think that this war of mine, given the current, uh, what's going on in the world news at the moment, do you think that this war of mine is a little bit on the, uh, risque side at the moment, but nobody's saying boycott this game, or, you know, like, change it, you need to change this right now, it, basically what I'm trying to get at is that these, there are certain things that are going to affect others, and, I'm more than respectful of this, you know, if if you are somebody who has played one of these games I've mentioned and it does affect you badly, and then fine, that's perfectly fine, we're all, things affect us differently and we should be mind, I, I don't go to the extreme of we should change everything just because this thing is in the game. But I also don't go with the, like, this little thing again. I also don't go to the other extreme, which is that you should eviscerate somebody for speaking out about something that does bother them. You know, don't go to that levels, because that's just mean. But then I think we're kind of overreacting with the other side as well, and I want to take a more balanced approach, like somewhere in the middle. There's got to be a good middle ground for saying, okay, we should bring the subject matter to a publisher's attention. But... Do we really need to go to the levels of turning it into effectively a witch hunt? Now, now I know that this was discussed with Stonemaier ahead of time before that video came out. So, A, why the waterworks still, but B, you know, it was mentioned that Stonemaier was warned about this from a cultural consultant that they had before the review copies were sent. Considering he picks who he sends these things to... I find it a little bit odd that with that warning, knowing who you're sending it to, there was not a piece of little blip in his mind to say, you know what, this might not be the best idea. You know, it's like, 
It's like finding... I mean, this is a very horrible example, and I do apologise for this now, but it's basically like taking a game about World War II, uh, like, take... Yeah, it's, it's basically like taking something like Shinzo's List, or whatever, and sending it to, you know, a Jewish re reviewer. There are certain things that you kind of just don't do, because of the link there, okay? It's not really something you should put together, really. And I just don't understand how this could have possibly slipped through the net to get to this stage it is now. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's staged or anything, but it's like, I don't know, something just doesn't add up. Things just feel a little bit odd. But at the end of the day, this will probably die down. It's no bother to Stonemeyer to print a little pack, and let's face it, it's going to be the most popular video on that channel for years to come, so hey, you know, some benefit came out of it, but yeah, I just, it is only a game, in my opinion. Now, some people will disagree with this, perfectly fine, you know, this is not, I'm not saying everybody should think this way, and honestly, I do respect if something does affect you in a negative way, certain things should maybe be kept out of games, but then we shouldn't necessarily censor every bit of history in a game, because at the end of the day, I've learned something new. I've you know, had a look online, done some Google research, and just had a brief understanding of what a Conquistador did. It's like, okay, I've learned something new as a result of seeing that in a game. If it wasn't there to begin with, I wouldn't know about this kind of thing. You can't just block it out of everybody's memory. I mean, can are we going to block the entire Second World War out of people's memory? Granted, I know a lot of people would want to, and I can understand why, but it's still part of our history. We need to know that stuff happened so that we can learn better from it. Granted, there are people in the world that are struggling to do that, but still, you get my point. But, yeah, as I say, I do give respect to anybody who has been affected by this. I give respect to Finger Femur for this, you know, fair play to them. You know, if it really affected you badly, then fine. Not got a problem with that. I just think maybe it's been blown up a little bit much at the moment. Maybe we didn't need, like, a massive video to, like... To turn it into like because as soon as it came out everybody's pointing the finger at Stonemaier going how dare you it's like and I, I don't want that sort of thing to happen you know I, I want people to take a balanced approach to everything understand one side of the story but then kind of understand the other side as well without taking extremist viewpoints as I say that's just my thoughts I I was struggling to think whether I should even talk about it because lord knows what will come of this but I just kind of had to say my thoughts, really. As I say, what are your thoughts? Stick them in the comments. Alrighty, let's talk about something... Oh, I wish I could say something a bit more positive, but unfortunately, it's not that positive. Um, has anybody remembered a game called Marvel Zombicide? Uh, <laughs> Marvel Zombicide is a big, giant Kickstarter from Call Mini or Not, who do nothing but minis, 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 money, 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 minis, minis, and they did a Kickstarter for Marvel Zombies. Now, I have stopped backing Kickstarters from Call Me or Not since Rising Sun. Because I love Rising Sun, but I don't think I should have spent anywhere near the amount of money and shipping I did on that game. It was way too much, I should have held back. And so, Marvel United, I opted out of. Uh, the Freedom 5 game from Alderac, I know it's not Call Me or Not, but that did a similar thing to what Call Me or Not do, which is, oh, here's a nice little, like, game priced at a certain amount, and, okay, I'll back this, you know, $60, $70 for this game, it looks cool, great. Oh, by the way, here's the really cool, here's the cool minis, yeah, you want the minis, you don't want this rubbish one, you want all the cool minis, and look, expansion one, and expansion two, and suddenly it costs 400 bucks. 
I hate this practice in Kickstarter. It needs to stop now. Right, absolutely now it needs to stop. Well, Call Me or Not do this down to a T. Every single one of their things is, here's a single game pledge money. Here's expansion one, expansion two, add on this, more minis here, more minis there, more minis there. And by the by the end, you've spent $500 on a game that's basically a simple game for families. Really? I talk about value in games, and games are getting more expensive these days. You really do need to be a little bit more careful with your money here, guys, because games are expensive. They're getting more expensive. No game is worth $500. Now, if, say, Marvel United came out as just that single game, and then they did Kickstarters over time for the expansions, or they just released the expansions over time, you know what? I'd be cool with that. It's what Fantasy Flight effectively does. They release tons of expansions for a game, typically, but you can choose whether to get the expansions. And I know you can argue, well, you can choose to get the expansions from a Kickstarter, but fear of missing out FOMO is a dangerous addiction, and it really does affect people, myself included, at times. I mean, that's why I backed everything for Rising Sun, fear of missing out. I now wish I hadn't, but... Fear of missing out with something like this in Marvel United was insane. I mean, this went to stupid levels like getting us a humongous Galactus figure, which is completely pointless for a figure. But hell, if you want something that stands up like several feet tall, then great. There's your giant miniature. Especially for a game that is basically Zombicide with extra tweaks. I mean, that is all this game is. It's just another version of Zombicide. Will Cool Mini or not try something innovative? But they basically did like a... Pretty expensive Kickstarter. I mean, 130 for no zombie heroes. No, this is um, no, this is the second pledge level. There was one cheaper where you just play as a normal uh, like section. But as I say, the minis look awesome. Not going to deny it. And that miniature is ridiculous. <laughs> but it's, I'm not going to deny it looks cool. But here's the problem here, and I'm using Board Game Quest's uh, blog post that they've done. So you know, in all fairness, go to Board Game Quest and read this blog article like I have. A problem has arisen where the Kickstarter has basically put out an update for the shipping costs. The shipping costs were already fairly high for this because you're posting a lot of boxes. But if you, unless you've been living in a cave lately and you're involved with Kickstarter, you know that shipping has gotten a bit problematic over the last couple of years, particularly the last year. Shipping costs across the world are going up and up and up. Freight shipping is ridiculous. Brexit happened, much against our will, you know, and ended up, basically making the UK nigh on impossible to deliver things to for cheap. You know, we're suffering a lot as a result of that. But yeah, the shipping around the world is an expensive thing, which means you really do need to be careful with Kickstarters. In fact, I give kudos to Board Game Quest here. At the bottom of their blog article, they say you really ought to just be a $1 backer on a Kickstarter because then you can decide whether you want to jump into it. But if you're a $1 backer and it goes south, you've only lost a single buck. You know what? That's a cool idea, actually. Good tip. Very good tip. Well done on that. But getting to the point after I have a drink here. Mmm, chamomile tea. Lovely. Right. Calmness. Basically, the shipping has updated to give people a bit of a shock. <laughs> okay, this is a game that raised about £9 million, uh, $9 million on Kickstarter. This was ridiculous. And I love Marvel. And I think Marvel Zombies is a cool concept. The What If episode was okay. It wasn't brilliant, but the concept of Marvel Zombies is fine. I didn't back this. 
<laughs> because it was too expensive. It was ridiculous the amount of add-ons you got. And what do I want with a 10-foot tall Galactus figure? And it with 10 foot, okay, not 10 foot, but you know what I mean. It's it's tall. It's tall for a table. But here we go. So fast forward three months from the end of the Kickstarter, and basically news of port congestion, container prices, and shipping backlogs have resulted in shipping costs being updated to ridiculous levels here. The resistance pledge here, right, which was not even the most popular pledge level, it didn't include the, uh, like, yeah, it didn't include the Galactus statue, right, two-wave shipping, so getting one bit sooner than the rest later, we're looking at shipping costs of a hundred and fifteen dollars. 115. Okay, now if you were patient and waited, $67 is what they've quoted here. 67 is still quite a bit, but that's one wave, and that's not even for everything, right? Switch to the all-in pledge level, they report that in that includes a giant galactic statue, comes at a cost of $155 and $200 for single and two-wave shipping respectively. And that's just for USA shipping. Think about this. In the country where they, as far as I'm aware, Coolmini are not as American, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. But in the country where they're based, that's how much it's costing to ship around the USA, okay? Do you want to have even a remote guess of, like, Europe and Australia? I am seeing people on the Facebook forums basically quote costs of $237. 330 I saw at one point. I don't know if that was accurate, but 330 This is ridiculous. You know, I mean, he quotes here, If I wanted the all-in pledge with two-wave shipping, I'd be looking at a total cost of this game of $800. What in the flying boop? You know, it's like, oh my god. God, this is insane. I feel bad for everybody who has been caught out by this. If you are one of the people who are stuck in this predicament of a ridiculous shipping cost, honestly, I feel your pain, all right? I, you know, all respect to you, all, like, condolences to you, but this is beyond stupid. Now, I cannot understand how Corny and Many or Not didn't see this coming and quote higher shipping because... This is not like it's been a shock just now. It's like been going on for the last year. But now, what do Kill Many or Not do? Kill Many or Not is actually defending their prices, stating the rising cost of shipping in containers worldwide. This sounds like they're basically wiping their feet under the carpet. Wiping their feet under the carpet? You know what I mean. You know, wiping it under the carpet and passing 100% of the shipping cost to backers. If they do that... Honestly, I think there's going to be some boycott of Kumini or not, because this is ridiculous. You cannot exp you cannot say that this is the consumer's fault entirely, okay? Consumers should be aware of the shipping crisis, so they should have maybe put together that if they were going to order everything, the cost of shipping was going to be a bit more than what they were picking, but that's not to say it was exactly obvious. So I'm not going to put a lot of blame on the consumer here. This is more a cool mini or not thing, who, given that this is what they do, giant Kickstarters, they should have been aware of this, okay? But, oh my god, this is ridiculous. I mean, here's another example on the board here you might have seen. 199.34 for two-wave expedited shipping. Insane! You know, the backers are right to be upset about this. It's insane. But... You know, obviously, Kumini are not sort of defending themselves. Backers are in a, you know, situation. But then what can the publisher do? If the publisher absorbs this entire shipping cost, it will pretty much 
well, it won't bankrupt Cormany or not. They've probably got tons of money, but it's certainly going to basically wipe out the profits of this Kickstarter. And I'm surprised it's even a profitable fit. Well, actually, no, nine million. Of course, it's profitable. But yeah, if they absorb it, they will really be in a. You know, they will really be cutting into their money here. But then, what's a backer to do? If you ask for a refund, you lose ten percent of what you pledged. So everybody's ten percent worse off, and cool many are not still earn out of it. In fact, if anything, they earn more of you getting a refund because that's ten percent of your money that they don't have to put into the cost of making the game in the first place. So this is actually better for them if it happens. But you know, board game quests make a great point here. The campaign closed three months ago. You can't tell me shipping has changed that much in two months. Correct. There is no way it changed that much in two months. Call cool Money or Not had to know the state of global logistics at that time. Now, he says the cynic in me thinks that they might have been hoping to lure in backers before socking them with costs on the pledge manager. There is no evidence of this, as they quote, and I do not condone the idea that that is exactly what has happened, because again, there is no evidence of this. But something is shady here. Something has to be shady here, because there's no way that this could have shocked Cool many or not. They had to have known that this was going to be the case. With this many boxes and this much weight, there could have been so much more warning for people, all right? I mean, what does that mean this is going to cost when it comes out on retail? You know, you're better off waiting for it to come out on retail, frankly, if you haven't backed this, because there's no way anybody is going to pay that. And think of all the people that are going to go to their spouses and say, oh, you know, you know, wife, husband, whatever, you know, I bought this game and I now need to find another $200 to ship it over. Please don't. Why, why, why are you packing a suitcase? Seriously, this is, this is going to be a shock to a lot of people in an in a era where living costs have gone up, particularly in Britain. I don't know about the rest of the world, but certainly in Britain, the living costs have gone ridiculous as a result of you know various matters. But oh, this is going to hurt a lot of people. And I am really sorry for anybody that's in it. Although... The evil Homer side of me does have to pick up the telephone and basically say, called it, because I knew that something was going to go wrong with this Kickstarter when it was said. I was telling people that there was no way that this is going to be value for money, that this is just too much money to spend on a single game, because no game, not even my favorite game of all time, warrants $500 of my money. All right, Spirit Island, I've got everything I need for it, even upgraded tokens. I guarantee that didn't cost anywhere close to half of the previous $500, like, I mean, this this is ridiculous. And that's with expansions in any way. Just buying the game at first, I, I can understand that some things are, I spent a lot on Sentinels and the Multi-Earth, for example, but no game is worth this kind of money. It's insane. Are you going to, what's the, how many times are you going to play this game? What if you only play it five times and you decide it's not for you and you spent $500 on the game? That's $100 per play. Was that worth it? I don't think so. So yeah, you know, I've talked about it too much, I think. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel sorry for you lot. If you were caught by this, then I don't know what you can do. Maybe it's better to just give them the 10% and cut your losses because I just don't think you're going to get that much enjoyment out of the game to warrant this kind of money. Now, if you're able to pay this shipping cost without even worrying about it, then seriously, you got any of that money spare? I wouldn't say no to it. But, you know, I can't imagine anybody is just going to go, yeah, whatever, $200, I'll pay it. It's like pennies at the end of the day. Although, given that people are willing to spend $50 plus on super chats, on things like the Dice Tower live chat and things like that, 
maybe some people do have more money than sense because <laughs> I can't understand why you would ever give $50 on a super chat to anybody. That's an insane amount of money. I mean, that's, I don't know, but that's a side thing. Yeah. Wow. Woo. <laughs> this was a, a bit of a ranty episode by the end of it, wasn't it? And I feel that opinions are going to be very, very divisive on what is being said. But at the end of the day, remember, it's only a game. Doesn't deserve to cost this much, doesn't deserve this much backlash. It's still just a box of cardboard bits and tokens at the end of the day. We can take a balanced approach to everything. But at the end of but also opinions are gonna be divisive. They should be respected across the board, whether it's a balanced view or an extremist view. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Everybody reacts to things differently. And as long as everybody respects that of each other, then we'll get on just fine. You know, I have no disdain to anybody for thinking one way or the other because at the end of the day, it's opinion. You know, so there are people who watch my channel and don't agree with anything I say about a game. But they understand that it's just my opinion and they base their purchasing decisions on that. Great. Job done. My work is done. So that's kind of how I go. But whew, an hour and 13 minutes. I didn't expect the two new segments to take quite so long. But, ah, uh, well, like I say... Food for four. In terms of news, these two things that have happened are pretty big deals in the board gaming industry. But I think more, like I say, the the viticulture world thing. I think that will probably blow over in time. I think it's had its like fifteen seconds of fame here, and it will eventually sort of be forgotten about pretty quick. Marvel Sunbeside, though, I think this is going to have some serious repercussions. You know. Cool Mini or not, I'm not going to recover easily from this. You know, I don't care how many people are Cool Mini or not fanboys. This is going to hurt. Not just the wallets of consumers, which is the bit I'm more concerned about, and certainly not the wallets of Cool Mini or not, but certainly their reputation is going to take a hit from this. It's going to be interesting to see how this progresses. This is not something that's going to go away anytime soon so anyway that's it from me by all means check out the links in the description for the uh, referral links to kiender.co.uk please check out their website and if you want to purchase some games at a good discount uh, you get five percent discount if you use my referral code on your first purchase of games if you set up a new account with them it's uh, you know it's uh, not the biggest discount in the world but every little helps as i say i've just been talking about the value of games i'd say it's worth it uh, people have been taking advantage of that already and I thank you. It helps support this channel with more review copies, but it also hopefully saves you some pennies, which is the more important of those two things, I feel. But also, don't forget to check out the Patreon campaign if you uh, want to help support this channel a little bit further. Again, bearing in mind that I would never ask anybody to cut into their living costs to a substantial level just to help this channel out. It's not, you know, you need to obviously think about yourselves first. But on top of that, check out the top 10 worker placement games. Check out some of the other videos I've mentioned. By all means, have a read of Board Game Quest's uh, like article that they've shown. Have a watch of Finger Femur's video. You know, have a read of Stonemaier's blog. You know, get your own perspective on this. But I do say check out multiple viewpoints and opinions. Don't just single one out and say that's it. That's the gospel truth. Very controversial issues like this need to be taken 
from all angles, okay? That's the way I suggest. But until next time, I'll see you on the next episode of The Broken Meeple. If you like what you see, please remember to thumb up the video, consider subscribing to the channel, and leave a comment on your thoughts. I'm sure there's going to be a good mix of them here. Until next time, you can check out, as I said, the top 10 worker placement games, or you can check out a recent video I did on the Isle of Cats expansions that I mentioned before. Take care, and remember as always, as I've said multiple times this episode, it's only a game. Bye for now, take care, love you all, and respect each other, okay?